We made our way all the way down to verse 23, the last time we were together, where it says that they were fasting and asking the Lord for favor uh, as they made preparation for their journey uh, from the uh, captivity in Babylon under the reign of uh, Artaxerxes, the Persian king, who had allowed them with a great letter that we read the last time, great encouraging letter, and giving Ezra a great deal of authority, which he is going to be making use of as we get into the study tonight in the last chapter of this great book. Uh, But we'll continue now where we left off again, uh, beginning with verse 24, where it tells us, and this is chapter 8 again, chapter 8, verse 24, I separated 12 of the leaders of the priest, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brethren with them, and weighed out to them the silver, the gold, and the articles, the offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel who were present had offered. And I weighed them into the hands of a total of 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 gold basins worth a thousand drachmas and two vessels of fine polished bronze, precious as gold. That's a lot of wealth that they're carrying with them. And remember, there's about probably around 5,000 souls, mostly, well, with 1,500 men and women and children coming along, and they have no protection from Artaxerxes as, as far as a military presence that would go with them on their journey. They were traveling a great distance, again, pretty much around 900 miles using that northern route. It was a safer route, but it was longer, and there were still dangers along the way. Thieves and, and any number of different possibilities could have created a great deal of problems for them. But remember, Ezra determined that he shouldn't ask for any help for protection from Artaxerxes because he had told Artaxerxes that their God is a God who will take care of them. So he didn't really want to look as embarrassing as that would have been, uh, as though he didn't really trust his God after all. So they left without that kind of protection, but they had a great deal of Uh, wealth with them, and uh, a talent is, I believe, around 70 pounds, so if you're consistent in your measure and in the value of currency or value of precious metals, you can do the math, and there are several, several millions of dollars worth of silver and gold that they're carrying with them. It tells us again in verse 28, and I said to them, well, verse 27, rather, um, he had collected all of that money together, 20 gold basins worth a 1,000 drachmas, two vessels of fine polished bronze, precious as gold. And I said to them, the 12 men that he had given this resources to, you are holy to the Lord. The articles are also holy. And the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord God of our fathers. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests, and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel in Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites received the silver and the gold and the articles by weight to bring them to Jerusalem 
to the house of our God. So they weighed them in advance of their departure. He made sure that each of those 12 men were given the responsibility of carrying that great wealth all the way from Babylon to Jerusalem. And once they got to Jerusalem, there was to be a recounting of those valuable items to make sure that nothing was missing. There was an accountability here that was, I think, quite impressive and very needful, of course. Uh, there could have been people within the community that was traveling that might have possibly been a little bit greedy and wanted to maybe, maybe take some of that great wealth. But they were protecting that, and they were uh, encouraged by Ezra to make sure that they are understanding that when they get to Jerusalem, they will be responsible for the fact that everything is still intact that was as it was when they first left. I think accountability in the church is very, very much important as well. And my friends, I want you to know that in our church, we do have a system of accountability, not quite like that, but it is important for every church, I believe, to uh, make sure that no individual can find a way to uh, extort any funds. Uh, it's, it would be obviously very wrong, and it's happened so many, many times in many different places in the churches of God, but we do try to do our best to make sure that there is an accountability between those who count the money, those who uh, record the money, those who are uh, reconcile it. We have a treasurer, we have an auditor, and they're, they're internal, but we do make sure that whenever money is counted, there are two people at least counting. So those are things that we do specifically because it's so very, very important for us to maintain that level of accountability. As it was with them, so it is with us. Moving on from that, in verse 31, he tells us, Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. So we came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. Now it took them a total of four months, remember. They left in the first month. They arrived in the fifth month of the same year. So now they've come to Jerusalem and he tells us once again in, in verse 31, it's critically important that we remember this is Ezra's understanding of God's presence with him throughout this journey. And he tells us very clearly it was the fact that the hand of their God was upon them that he was able to deliver them from the hand of any enemies from any ambush along the road to Jerusalem. So it says now, after the fourth day, on verse 33, Now on the fourth day the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest, and with him was Eliezer, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Jezebad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Binuai. With the number and weight of everything, all the weight was written down at that time. And then the children of those who had been carried away captive, who had come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and twelve male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. And they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people 
and the house of God. So they've arrived, they've made sure that the leadership in that territory that were governors of the king knew that Artaxerxes had indeed sent Ezra with this letter that was giving him the authority to do that which he had come to do. He had come to teach the people about how they were to serve the Lord. That was his primary goal. He was coming to be a teacher. He believed that it was very important that the people in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, would have a good, solid understanding of what the Word of God says. And that was his goal, that was his purpose for coming. And so now we find in chapter 9 that there have been problems. And he perhaps was not even aware of any of this, or if he was aware of at least some of it, I don't think he was aware of the great extent to which this particular problem, sin, had infiltrated, infected the people of God. But as I said last week, things were going really, really very well for Ezra, but things now are going to change very rapidly. In these last two chapters, we're going to see a really serious issue that has to be dealt with. And it's dealt with very firmly by Ezra. And remember, he's got the backing of Artaxerxes' letter in chapter 7 of verse 26, the end of Artaxerxes' letter. The king Artaxerxes gives Ezra this authority. He said in that letter, Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. So Ezra does have this legal authority from the king to judge those who have been in the territory of Judah in this rebuilding of the temple that had already been finished. The city was inhabited. There were other communities in the region that were beginning to uh, grow and flourish, although it was very, very difficult and it was very slow. There was some progress being made. That was all good. But underlying all of the good things that were going on, there was a real sin issue. And chapter 9 introduces that sin issue for us. It tells us in verse 1, When these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Ammonites, Amorites. Now, what they're saying here is they have been unwilling to separate themselves from the heathen people groups that were still in the territory where they were living. That was a very, very serious issue. And it became much more serious when the rest of the information that is given was made known to him. It tells him this is a consequence. In verse 2, they have taken some of their daughters, the daughters of those Gentile nations, and taken them as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. The word trespass is a very serious word indeed. It's maybe in some translations 
unfaithfulness, but it is trespass in the original Hebrew. And the word trespass implies that a deliberate turning away from a command of God has taken place. It's not the same as the word sin. A sin can be a trespass. And a trespass definitely is a sin. But not all sins are trespasses. Some sins are not intentional sins, but they're still sins because they were things that were done, perhaps inadvertently, unknowingly. The individual had touched a dead body, for instance, and it became a defilement. And for that, that would be something that still had to be taken care of. Well, a sin that was done unintentionally, excuse me, unintentionally or ignorantly, would still be a sin and it still needed to be dealt with. But a trespass was something far worse. A trespasser was saying, I don't care what God says, I'm going to do it anyway. And friends, that's a very, very serious thing. Remember, it tells us again in verse 2 that they considered themselves to be the holy seed of God. How can that mean, or what can that mean? It means this. They were to be the ones from whom the Messiah would come. And so they needed a pure lineage. They could not intermarry with foreign women who were still idolaters, still worshiping their foreign gods. It was an abominable thing to the Lord. It was spoken against in Leviticus 24 that they were to never marry a heathen unless, excuse me, I've got the hiccups. I'll try to get by that quickly. But unless the uh, person, the, the heathen woman, would become a proselyte. And then it would be accepted, but she could never enter into the court where the men or even the Israelite women could enter in into the worship of the temple. Still a Gentile, but yet a proselyte and eligible for marriage. By the way, Ruth was a Gentile woman and she was a proselyte into the faith. So was earlier than that Rahab in Jericho. She became a believer and she was accepted among the people. Those marriages that they were part of the family of God. In fact, they are direct ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they were allowed into that marriage relationship because of their conversion through being proselytized. But there is not that indication here in the women that have been brought into this relationship with the people in Judah at that time. Perhaps you remember that we mentioned in previous studies in the book of Ezra that there were two prophets who were contemporary of these men and Ezra and Nehemiah were indeed contemporaries with Haggai the prophet and also Zephaniah. I want to take you to the book of Haggai and take a look at chapter 2, a few verses out of chapter 2, which gives us a sense for what God considers to be a very, very important issue with regard to that which is holy becoming in, coming into contact with that which is unholy. In chapter 2 of the book of Haggai, 
and this, it's uh, several books later on, and uh, if you haven't yet gotten there, don't worry about that. We'll be just reading a short passage. But uh, if you have arrived, we're in chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 10 of the book of Haggai, where it tells us, On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, if one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answers and said, no. So he's got this holy meat consecrated to the Lord in the temple. And he's got it in his garment, and it touches now some other food. And he asks very, very specifically Will that holy food that he's carrying make that which is not consecrated, that unholy food, to become holy? And the priest said, no, that's not possible. The holy thing touching the unholy thing cannot make the unholy thing holy. That's what is being spoken of here. It, then he goes on in verse 13 and says further, And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? And so the priest answered and said, Yes, it shall be unclean. So if an unclean touches that which is clean or holy, the unclean then will make that which was holy unholy. So that's what the law determines for the people of God. They were holy. They cannot touch that which is unclean. It extends not only from the touching of unclean things, but also with regard to relationships with those people who are unclean. They are the holy seed, and the Gentiles were the unholy people that they could not come into contact with. And now we find that they have, in more than one case, they have come into contact with those who are unclean. And the Word of God had spoken very clearly, they must not allow that to happen. This is not a problem with interracial marriage. It's a problem with that which is holy versus that which is unclean. And it tells us in verse 2 again, indeed the hand of the leaders and rulers have been foremost in this trespass. Not only the people of God, the descendants of Judah and the other tribes who were there present, but the Levitical priesthood were also guilty in this matter. They had the law. They were the ones who were to teach the law to those of the other tribes, but yet they were involved in this transgression just as much as many of the other tribal people. And it's a terrible trespass that God now needs to deal with. Perhaps Ezra again, did not know the extent of any of this until he arrived in Jerusalem to find out this very, very tragic thing. But take a note at what, take a look at what Ezra does in verse 3 of chapter 9, back in the book of Ezra, where it says, So when I heard this thing, Ezra speaking and writing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. He was overwhelmed with grief. I don't know what it feels like to pluck out the hair from 
my beard. <laughs> I don't think I would want to do that. Or pull out the hair in my head. I know some people have done that in grieving, and, and I think it's a, you know, an expression, it obviously is an expression of great grief and sorrow. And that's exactly what was being presented here. Ezra was so overwhelmed with this grief over the sin of the people of God in that territory of Judah that he had just arrived in, and now he finds this terrible news, and it's devastating to him. And then it says in verse 4, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. He couldn't even say anything because of the grief that he was experiencing. And then at the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. This is the only thing and the very right thing for Ezra to have done. Go to the Lord in prayer. He needs to know, God, what am I going to do? You've sent me all this way. You've, your hand has been upon me over and over and over again. We saw that that's what Ezra believed and told us as we've read through chapter 7 and 8 together last week. And just in this last few verses of chapter 8, we saw it again. Now he's going to call out to his God. And I want you to understand, Ezra chapter 9 contains one of three prayers in the Old Testament that I look at very, very seriously. And it's easy to remember where they're located. Each one of these prayers that I'm referring to are in chapter 9 of the particular books in which they are given. The first one oldest of them is Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9. The next one is this one in Ezra chapter 9. And the last one that I'm referring to is in Nehemiah chapter 9. You could make a note of that if you would, and perhaps go back after our study tonight and take the time to read all three prayers. And you'll find a common denominator among them. And it's a very, very important one. And I want you to see that as we read this prayer of Ezra. He begins by saying in verse 6, O oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of the, our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to the captivity, to plunder, to humiliation, as it is this day. You notice what the focus of Ezra's prayer is? It's not on, they have done this, O God, but his focus is, we have done this. He owns the guilt even though he may not himself have been involved directly in it, he has a responsibility, he takes it upon himself, to realize that the sin of his people is not just their sin, but it's a sin of all of the people of God, including himself. He may not have done any of those sins, but he does say, I'm responsible for the sin of the people. In our present day, we have seen over and over and over again people who have named the name of Jesus Christ, 
who have fallen into very, very deep sinfulness and suffered great consequence as a result of that. There have been many who have not repented of their sin. There are many who have chosen to reject the truth of God's word and done what they choose regardless of whether or not it is in line with what God's word declares. And those are the ones that we should be praying for, encouraging and and focusing our time together with them to lead them in the direction that they should go. And if we fail to do that, then we fail to have that sense of responsibility that we should have in order to prevent sin from spreading in the body of Christ. That's so very, very important. But we need to do it in love, and we need to do it with loving kindness that is extended to the sinner. Paul, in the book of Corinthians, talked to the Corinthian church about a great sin that was going on in their church. He told them that the consequence of that sin was very grievous, that they needed to deal with it. And they did deal with it, and then there was repentance by the individual that had been sinning, and he was brought back into the fellowship. That is the goal of any dealings with sinfulness. We're not condemning people to expel them out of the church and and uh, cause them to walk away from God. Not that at all. We want to explain to them the need for repentance and to draw them back into fellowship because that's the goal, to restore them, not to destroy them. But here, Ezra is very much involved in bearing the responsibility of the sin of the people. He says in verse 8, And now for a little while grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. So he recognizes the fact that God has left a window open for them to return and repent and to come back and confess their sin. It always begins with confession. And in confessing our sin, God is always faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. First John. It's always the way God operates. And it was that way in that day. It's interesting, he, he mentions that you give us a peg. It's like just a tent peg holding up only a small portion of the tent. So a little tiny peg is what God has left us with to be able to give us that opportunity to to take full advantage of that grace of God and then come back to Him and enjoy His wonderful mercy as a result by allowing a revival to take place. He had protected them. That's what he was saying in verse 8. He made them to be a remnant that was able to escape, and he was grateful for that. Now in verse 9 he says, Because we were once slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. 
He knows that these are commandments that have been disregarded by the people of God. They forsook His commandments. That's a transgression. He turned away from their Lord and did something completely different than what God had wanted for them to do. He says, We have forsaken your commandments, verse 11 continues, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the land, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another, with their impurity. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. They disobeyed God's command. This is a direct command, again, coming from the book of Leviticus. He continues on in his prayer, and he says, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you have consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? Ezra recognizes the fact that if they continue down this path, isn't it true that God would ultimately judge them? He's expecting that judgment would indeed come, and they'd be deserving of it. But take note of what he says in verse 13. God, we have already been guilty, and you haven't judged us, you haven't punished us as much as I think you should have judged us, as much as the punishment should have been. Our iniquities deserve far greater judgment than what we've received, even though they were brought into captivity in Babylon for those 70 years. Ezra realizes that God could have done much worse, but his mercy was extended to them so that he protected them. He gave them the opportunity to come back into the land. He blessed them. He was, after all, their God, and they were, after all, his people. And by the way, they still are today. Ezra continues in his prayer, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day, here we are before you, in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. No one who is guilty can stand before a holy God and say, I'm not guilty. God knows everything. You cannot hide your guilt from Him. No sin will go unnoticed. God is judge, and He does not allow sin to enter into His presence. We need to remember that as we move forward in our serving our God in these last days. Just as it was with them, so it is with us. God expects a great deal from us because He has given a great deal to us. Chapter 10 continues with now the result of His having found out what was going on in Jerusalem, in the territory of Judah, while He had been preparing to come all that way he was totally unaware of those things. But now he has to deal with it. Now he has to determine what can be done. And this is the decision that is given in chapter 10 with regard to the taking of foreign wives when they should not have allowed it to happen. 
Verse 1 of chapter 10 says, Now while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, all, for all the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have transgressed, trespassed against our God, and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Take note of the fact that somebody other than Ezra has made this suggestion that this is what must be done. He recognizes, yes, we have trespassed, and God is making a way for us to become forgiven people of God once again. There is a way, and there is only one way, and that way is confession and repentance. Godly sorrow always leads to repentance. Second Corinthians chapter 7 tells us that very specifically. But worldly sorrow does not. And I hope that you remember there is, excuse me, a very, very significant dif difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a sorrow that comes from recognizing the fact that you have done something that offends your God. And you come to God and you recognize the fact that you have offended Him and you are sorrowful because you did not want to offend your God. That kind of sorrow is a sorrow that God will embrace. Worldly sorrow, on the other hand, is simply a sorrow that says, I wish I hadn't gotten caught. Now I have got to pay the consequences. That's worldly sorrow. That's not really saying that you're sorry that you have sinned. It's saying you're sorry that you got caught in your sin. There's a great difference. But godly sorrow, that which is a sorrow that leads to repentance, is what God is seeking. These people are coming now to Ezra and led by this man Shechaniah, and he's saying, we need to do the, that which is right. And we're behind you, Ezra, in this. You are the one that has the authority. You are the one that has been sent by God to make this happen. So be of good courage, Ezra. You are the one that God will use to bring this change in us about so that we can get back to the place where God wants us to be in holy communion with him. And again, he instructs Ezra with these words, Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. And so verse 5 tells us, Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. And so they swore an oath. This is important because Israel has sworn an oath on more than one occasion, all the way back to the wilderness experience at the Mount Sinai, 
when God had given the commandments to Moses, they swore an oath saying to Moses, tell him we will do all that he asks of us to do. They had sworn that they would do that. Of course, we all know that they did not. They could not do all that God had commanded. But here they're making an oath saying that we will do whatever it is, Ezra, that you require of us to do as it is led by the Lord that you make the commandment to do so. Verse 6 says, Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehonahan, uh, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem, and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and elders, all his property would be confiscated, and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. Now remember, we just read earlier tonight, uh, the portion of Scripture in chapter 7, verse 26, where Artaxerxes had given Ezra this authority, and now he is expressing that authority in this statement, this proclamation that is being made and sent throughout all Judea. It tells us in verse 9, So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. So they were compliant with this proclamation. It was the ninth month on the 20th of the month. That's December, by the way, very late in the year, very cold and very wintry weather, mostly rain in that territory, but very, very cold uh, and heavy rains typically would come in those times. And that's what they're now coming to Jerusalem in that particular time of the year. And all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. So they were trembling internally because of the matter at hand, and they were trembling, trembling externally because of the heavy rain that was coming down on them. It must have been a very, very uncomfortable thing for them all to experience. Well, verse 10 continues and says, Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do this his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, as you have said, so we must do. The solution is to separate themselves from those pagan women. Now that sounds so very, very, well, harsh. To say the least, it is. Perhaps those relationships had been a very loving relationship. There was, in certain cases at least, some of them had children by those pagan wives. Now they've got to take this step that is being expected of them because they have made a vow to obey that which was commanded of them. And they have to separate themselves from these wives. We're not told exactly how that is done. I believe, because of God's ways, that he would have wanted them to separate themselves from them in terms of not having any relationship sexually with them anymore, but still be obligated to provide for them, or at least send them back to their families so that their families could provide for them. 
So it's not anything that God is asking of them that would be a criminal thing at all. But God is expecting them to do this because they had transgressed. And the only way to correct it is to reverse that which they have done. It's a very harsh thing. Yes, indeed it is. But God expects it not only in the Old Testament days, but also in our day as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes to the Corinthian church that they must be holy, just as Ezra had been saying to the people in his day, so Paul says to us in our day. In chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. God is saying, look, it may be difficult to separate yourselves from that which he says is an unholy thing, but you must understand that God will reward that which you do when you are obedient to what he commands. People of God, we need to be sure that we understand God's word is a word of truth that is to all. He doesn't deviate from his word. He does not allow anyone to name the name of Christ and fall into a place where he or she would be expected not to be outside of his will if they choose to be unbelieving with regard to his word. Very serious thing, indeed. Back into Ezra in chapter 10, verse 13 says, But there are many people. It is a season for rain, and we are not able to stand outside. Nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come up at appointed times together with the elders and judges of their cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikva, oppose this. And Meshulam and Shebathiah, the Levite, gave them support. So there were only a handful of all the people that had gathered who were against this idea of being able to resolve the issue by putting away these wives. The vast majority of them were in agreement. It says in verse 16, Then the descendants of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest with certain heads of the father's households were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name, and they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. Now, some of them may have married proselytes. That would be okay. They could keep those wives. But those who would come, it took 
that matter of three months' time to get it all sorted out and taken care of. And finally, the issue has been resolved. Now, verse 18 tells us a little bit about some of the individuals who were priests that actually were involved in this trespassing of great, great consequence. It tells us, And among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the following were found of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josedach. Remember, he was the first priest that came from Babylon, from the captivity, all the way back over 60 plus years before this. He says, Jeshua had a son. And it tells us that some of his sons, actually more than one, some of his sons had actually done this abominable thing. They found that the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and his brothers, their names are Measala, Eliezer, Jareb, and Gedaliah. They had done that which was an abomination to God by taking a foreign wife. It says in verse 19, And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, they presented a ram of the flocks as their trespass offering. So they repented, they gave a sin offering unto the Lord, and that was acceptable. They had put away those wives and repented and done what was right in the sight of the Lord. They were priests. They were also Levites, not priests, but servants of uh, the temple, descendants of Aaron, who served within that temple compound. There were also singers. They were also uh, the servants of the Levites, the Nethelin. They were all of them participants in this travesty. And from verse 20 all the way through to the end of chapter 10 is a list of many, many names. I'm not going to read them. There's too many names and too hard a read for most of us to be able to pronounce them all. I don't want to bore you with that. But take note of the fact that God knows who they are. God knows who those are that have entered into a trespass with their God. God knows who they are who have confessed their sin. And God knows who they are that have truly repented and come back and followed after the truth of God's word. And in so doing, their names are recorded here. Not a very nice place to find your name. And if you happen to read through this list of names, I hope you don't find your name in this list. But if you do, there's opportunity for you as was the case with them. You can indeed confess your sin. You can indeed repent from your trespass. You can indeed expect God's forgiveness because He is a gracious and merciful God. And we'll stop there tonight. Finish the book of Ezra, technically. We're going to move right on next time, the Lord willing, into the book of Nehemiah. Another series of very, very important things that take place in the recovery of from the Babylonian captivity that Nehemiah will record for us. And some of it, all of it is very important, but some of it is in particular great importance to us in our present hour. So till then, my friends, God bless. Thank you for coming.